You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena, the parochial vicar of St. Anne's Parish in Butte, Montana, and chaplain of Butte Central Catholic Schools. Enjoy. Okay, so this is the third part of a four-part talk that I'm giving you all, and and I understand that many of you have been gone for one of them, maybe two if you didn't show up the first night and you missed last meeting. So I did manage to record the last one. If you're interested, you can listen to that one. On you know, It's on Mountain Catholic, which is Matt Sewell's blog. Or I think it's on YouTube, too. I don't know. So you can listen to it on there, and I'll point to that if you, you want to kind of maybe get a, the bigger picture. If not, this one can kind of stand alone if, if you need it to. So it's fine. Uh, also, read the book. It's a great book. I'm not going to be pushing it into in this talk because the church is a huge and magnificent thing and there's way too much to talk about to talk about the same thing twice. So read that, learn it, and enjoy it. And the whole book is great. I actually, it was a big part of my conversion. I loved it. Read it. read it about the same age as you guys. So first talk, we push into the theme of kind of exitus reditus. We come from God. We're destined to go back to God. That's, that's the trajectory of the human being. We were created by God and our destiny is heaven. And the whole history of humanity is kind of God bringing us back to himself. So that's kind of the first talk. We were created by a God who loves us, wants us for himself. Then the second talk was kind of the fall to the cross. So we fell... We betrayed God in his love. Although we were perfectly free, we still chose to betray God. And then that results in the fall. We talked about what happens there. And then kind of pushed forward to Christ on the cross. What that means for us. What the meaning of sacrifice is. The theology of sacrifice. Uh, God restoring us to an even greater destiny than we had in Eden. So... We're not, we're not meant to just go back to Eden. That's not our destiny anymore. We actually have something greater, which is divinization. If you guys remember what that means. It's, it's partaking in the Holy Trinity. That's our destiny. And that's a great, incredible, almost impossible to even contemplate destiny. Uh, so so that's, it's worth the rest of our lives to think about that one. Uh, so now, if we move forward, where did, where did God leave us? Where did Jesus leave us after the ascension? After he ascended to the Father, where do we stand? And, and I think that's why, that's why we contemplate today the church. What is the, what is the church? And, and, uh, and I'm going to do that from a really interesting angle, I think. Uh, well, I find it interesting, but it's going to be different for sure. So different than that book. Because I'm not going to spend a day talking about the structure of the church. Uh, that's, I just don't think, what we need to talk about today. I'm going to push into... Uh, some some kind of parts of the early church. And I couldn't find a Modest Mouse quote to start with, so I'm going to start with some quotes from the Desert Fathers. So, Abba Arsinus, Arsinius, who was one of the great Desert Fathers, said about kind of the monks who lived in Egypt, he, he said, one hour's sleep is enough for a monk if he's a good fighter. Think about that one. One hour's sleep is enough for a monk if he's a good fighter. And then there were, there's another story of two monks kind of walking down the road. And, and these are kind of desert monks, so I don't know what they... They're just probably walking through the desert. And 
the disciple, you know, there's a disciple and kind of a father. And the, the younger monk sees some peas, you know, a little couple peas lying on the road. He says, Father, should I pick those up? And the other monk looks at him, he's like, why, did you put them there? He said, no, he's in. Then why would you pick them up? Wouldn't even let him pick up a couple of peas to eat. No, that's, that's, that's an intensity that I think for us is kind of unfathomable. So Anthony the Great, who was, he was kind of the father of monks, he said, my life is with my brother. And what he meant by that was Christian charity rules all things. Christian charity ought to be the rule of our life. And he left his kind of cell in the desert two times. One was during the plague. He went and spent weeks kind of just helping plague victims and, and basically kind of helping people to die with dignity. And the other time he left was to go help St. Athanasius at a council uh, when he was, and help kind of witness against a certain heresy. So now, just after a little glimpse into the Desert Fathers, who you may know nothing about, they're worth knowing something about, and we'll talk about them a little later. But those might be kind of intimidating kind of quotes, uh, intimidating kind of notions for us as modern people. But I think we, that's only kind of two centuries after Christ that people are living that sort of life. So how do we get from kind of 12 uneducated men in Galilee to crazy desert monks in 150 years. I think, uh, well, 12 uneducated men and and quite a few more educated women in the early Christian group. But how do we get from there to the the Roman Empire being Christian in under 300 years? I think it's worth looking at. And and I think in the brief time that I I have here, I want to push into kind of some of the the ideals of the early church. What does the early church look like? What are people doing? And I think that'll give us, I think more than anything, the early church speaks into our time. Uh, Because we've almost gone in this big kind of loop where the early church was in a a pagan world. It's Christians in a pagan world. And then in a sense, we kind of won that world and and then there was a sort of, the world was sort of Christian. The mainstream, Christian was the mainstream for, for 1,500 years. And we're kind of moving back into a pagan world when it comes down to it. Like your generation, I think, is 30% practicing, you know, practicing of any faith. And then like 50%, 55% spiritual, not religious, and 15% atheist. I think that's pretty much the what I've gotten uh, but the 55% generally believe in God, but they're not really uh, practicing any sort of faith. So we're, we're moving back into essentially a non-Christian world at this point. So I think the early church, we need to look there for how do we do this? How do we go about this life? Uh, and, and so I think it's very profound for us to look at it. So, first, what does the early church do in the face of persecution? You know, we're not facing necessarily persecution, but I think it gives us insight into the into the gospel you guys know what happened to the apostles i think it's there's a lot of kind of stories about the 12 apostles and i'll just tell you i'll give just like a list how did they end up you know where did they end up uh they they went to the whole like the corners of what they knew as the world 
actually. There's, I think James Thomas ended up in, in India. You know, there's St. James, possibly made it all the way to Spain. Uh, it's incredible the, the lengths to which they went. Uh, and I'll just give you their fate. You know, Bartholomew was skinned alive and beheaded. James the Lesser was stoned and clubbed. Andrew was crucified upside down in the shape of an X. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was impaled by a spear. James the Greater was beheaded. Philip was crucified. Matthew was killed with a sword and then burned. Judas was sawed in half. Judas Thaddeus, not Judas Iscariot. Simon the Zealot was either sawed in half or axed to pieces. We don't really know. Uh, John was boiled, but he survived. And then he was exiled to Patmos because they didn't know what to do with him. So that's the fate of the 12 apostles. And I don't, I don't say that to be gruesome. I say that because I'm like, why would you do that? Why would you endure that? You know, if, if, if they didn't believe what they thought, then, then why would they do that? There's, I, Gamaliel, who was a great Jewish leader, gave advice to the Jews when they were persecuting the Christians uh, for preaching the gospel in the, in the synagogues. And he said to them, Leave them alone. For it's of, if it's of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you'll not be able to stop them. And you may find yourselves fighting God. I think the early Christians, especially the apostles, we see in the Gospels, if you read the Gospels, you, know, you see that the apostles are not courageous men. They all leave at the crucifixion. John is the only one there. They all, they're all cowards, essentially. They just failed over and over again. But we see something totally different after the resurrection, which means that, which means that they believed that the resurrection happened. They weren't pulling off some big lie. It wasn't a spiritual thing. Jesus was actually resurrected. So, no one dies for a lie. We know that for sure. And I think we see in the church this kind of continued heroic sense in the face of persecution. I think the number is like 37 of the first 38 popes were martyred. It wasn't a good thing to become pope in the first and second century. It's kind of a death sentence, you could say. And, uh, but men chose to live that heroically anyways. By 250 AD, the church in Rome, and this is still when it's illegal, the church in Rome was living by a standard of charity that, I don't, that the world had never seen before. I think, and this isn't, I, I, really they're kind of, this is something totally new. That just in Rome, 1,500 widows and orphans were being supported monetarily by the church. Because the law in, their, in, the, in ancient Rome was, if you're a woman and your husband died, you had to marry within a year, or the, the state took your property. Because women couldn't own property themselves. But in the early church, they, they knew that most of the time, that was just women being forced back into marriage. And usually, especially if they were wealthy, being coerced into marriage to someone that they didn't want to marry because the person wanted their money or the property or the property of the man who had died. So they gave them the option of just remaining single, of remaining widows, and it actually became an office in the church. And the, the widow was someone who spent their life in service to usually orphans, uh, but also to other widows who couldn't support themselves. 
And then the church supported that, paid for that. So there were 1,500 widows and orphans on the rolls just in Rome by 250. And there were, there were fewer Catholics in Rome than there were in kind of a normal, probably, city of Montana. So imagine supporting a, a homeless shelter of 1,500 just with your church in your town. It's incredible. So it, it, was, it was so obvious that, that the, last, uh, the last pagan emperor, Julian the Apostate, he said, no Jew has ever seen begging. And the, and the impious Galileans, the Christians, support not merely their own poor, but ours as well. So the charity was kind of unmatched. They, they gave everything. You know, a 10% tithe would have, would have probably been seen as kind of weak in that day. And I think more important, kind of the ideal of the early church, was the willingness to be a martyr. You know, do you guys know who Ignatius of Antioch is? He wrote this brilliant letter to the Romans, well, to everyone around, because he was in prison, sentenced to death for refusing to you know, give incense to the emperor. You know, so he refused to worship the emperor. And so he's sentenced to death, but he had connections because he was a bishop and, and there were people who really loved him. So they were going to free him from jail. They were, they were scheming to free him. So he wrote a letter and he said, I write to the churches and impress upon them all that I die willingly unless you hinder me. Allow me to become food for the wild beasts through whom I attain God. I am the wheat of God. Let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Like that is intense. Like I, that's, that's hard to relate to for us. I think it was the double witness of kind of the charity, this heroic charity, and the willingness to give everything for the Lord that won Rome. It conquered Rome. You know, no one could conquer Rome. Not a single sword was needed. So that's it's kind of a little a little bit about the early church. You know what that life looked like. It was it was intense. It was a community that I think is hard for us to comprehend. It was a willingness to die at a moment's notice. And it, and within a couple hundred years, it had won an entire empire. So what happens after they win? You know, because the martyr is the ideal in the early church, you know, the, the one who gives their life for Christ. But then once, you know, Rome becomes, in a sense, Christian, or at least the, you know, Edict of Milan tolerating Christians came about, what do we do then? How do we give our lives for Christ? And I think we see then the rise of kind of, I gave you guys a taste of a few of their quotes, the desert, desert fathers and desert mothers. You know, like if, if women, if you think this doesn't apply to you, I'll give you a little to- to- taste of uh, Emma, Sarah. So there was Abba's were the fathers and Amma's were the, fa- were the mothers. So Amma, Sarah lived besides a, beside a beautiful stream for 60 years. She chose to live beside a beautiful stream for 60 years and never once in those 60 years raised her eyes to look at the beautiful stream. She chose to live next to something beautiful and chose not to look at it for 60 years. Like, what is that? What's the, is there a point to that? We can talk, we'll talk about that, I think. At a, and then other times, 
you know, brothers would come to see her. Sometimes they would come for, for kind of a word, you could say. And then other times they would come as in kind of a condescending manner, you know. She's like, let's see what this spiritual woman has to say. And then she, she would say, it's I who are the man. You're the woman. And, and they, they kind of had to deal with that because she was a, a spiritual mother. The standards were so incredibly high. You know, Sinclitia, who was another mother, would say, Don't let yourself be seduced by the delight of riches and culinary arts as though it's useful. Rather, fast and eat cheap food. Do not fill yourself with bread, and you will not desire wine. Why, why do I point to all these quotes that, that, that probably seem foreign, and I don't even know if you think of them as great spiritual advice at the moment. And honestly, I think for us, maybe this seemed foreign because we're kind of so far from this in our society. Doesn't it seem like the desert fathers and mothers were, were just running away from the world? Like, one, running away from their problems? How are you supposed to evangelize and witness to those around you if you're if you flee into the desert you know that's kind of i think often when we think of those early monks maybe we think of that and so and so their words kind of fall on deaf ears but in the early church it was the act of leaving everything of just abandoning the pleasures of this life just just giving everything up for Christ, everything that you have physically up for Christ, that transformed the world. You know, that witness was more powerful than any other witness they could have had. So, like, I think of, I'll give a terrible comparison. Like, I have a dumb phone. And just that provokes more conversations than anything else that I do. It's like, how could you possibly not have a smartphone? Well, it's, it's not that hard, actually. I actually find it rather pleasant. Um, so then the Desert Fathers would see that as actually kind of weak, because I find it pleasant. But, but at the same time, it's just that one thing, giving up that one thing, is like a visibly obvious thing. If you want to provoke conversation with your friends, d- delete Snapchat. It's like, how could you possibly live? You know, this is, a, this is ridiculous. But the Desert Fathers and mothers gave up everything. They just left the world. And most of them were wealthy. They left everything behind. And I think that, that witness had more impact on the ancient world than any other thing about Christianity. Uh, you know, Basil used to say, like, what other movement in the history of humanity has had so many men and women just willing to give up their whole lives to pursue the one thing? The one thing. And that one thing is unity with Christ. You know, they, what they were thinking was, we've, we've realized in Jesus Christ coming among us that God wants to be our friend, that he actually wants a friendship with us. And, and, so, and so then what else in the world actually matters at that point? Like, what else could you possibly want if God wants to be your friend? And so their answer was, you know, certainly not food or drink or sex or comfort or sleep or power, or honor, or riches. None of that. 
So they left it all behind and pursued God alone. Now I think, so what, what can we learn from them? You know, because I don't think it's necessarily that we should start another movement to, you know, flee out in the desert. So what can we learn? I think Soren Kierkegaard, who's a kind of existentialist, he's the, kind of the father of existentialists, he said the saint is the one who di- desires the one thing. Like, totally focused on that one thing. I think we've lost, we've lost in our church today the intensity of the early church. You know, will it manifest differently if we give our lives to Christ today? Yes, it's going to manifest differently than it did then. But we've lost that intensity. We've lost the zeal of the early church fathers. Uh, I think we've lost the hatred for everything that isn't of God. And what is of God? Well, that takes discernment. But we've lost the hatred for what isn't. I don't even think we bother to discern anymore. So, even in the church today, we, we see the leaders of our church, you know, calling for a sort of compromise of things. To lower the bar, to conform to the world a little bit more, in order that maybe we can appeal to more people. But, I think we know, deep down, I think you guys know better than all of us generations older than you, I think you realize this more, that lowering the bar is just not going to bring us joy. It's not ever going to bring us joy. That only being the great saints that we're called to be is going to bring us joy. Kind of pursuing that one thing will bring us joy. And is that incredibly difficult? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's impossible, actually, if we don't give our lives to Christ. We just can't live as Christians. But it's the only thing that's worthy of your dignity. It's the only thing that's worthy of any of our dignity. And so, so after looking at the witness of these desert fathers, the witness of the martyrs, the final talk that we'll have in Butte at the fourth meeting will be on the moral teaching of the church. So, we wanted to kind of build up a foundation, hopefully, of, of what the church is, what it's calling us to, what's the goal. And then we can kind of dig in to what the church teaches and how difficult that is. And it is difficult, all right? There's a lot of things about church teaching that most Catholics just disagree with, all right? And maybe some of you disagree with it. And so, but we need to examine ourselves when we, when we say... I disagree with the church. What does that mean for us? So between now and this last meeting, I want you to look at those teachings. Think about them. Pray on them. If you disagree with them, get a hold of me. Actually, I want you to because I want to address exactly that. All right. Now that we have somewhat of a foundation, hopefully, now that you're kind of digging into the reasons why the church is the way it is, then we can kind of bring it to today. What do we face? What are we asked to do? And why is it worth it? All right? And maybe it isn't worth it. What isn't worth it for you? Uh, bring that. And we'll, we'll kind of confront all of those next time. And so next time, we'll be more like a, you guys have to provide the questions or I'll have nothing to answer, basically. And I'm glad to talk, but, but it might not be what you're looking for. So take this 
know your call, which is greatness, perfection, actually. And, and then kind of discern, what is it about the church that I think is unfair for them to ask of me? Uh, where is the bar too high? And then bring that, and we'll talk about that at the last meeting. So I'll finish with a story. Another, another story of a desert father. So, and this is kind of, I think, encapsulates Christianity. So there was a monk, a very young monk. He came and talked to Basil the Great. And he said, you know, Father, give me a word. And Basil said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the monk ran out of the room, went into the desert. 20 years later, he came back and said, Father, I've been trying to live your word for, for these past 20 years. I've struggled to live it. Give me another word. And he said, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he left for the desert and lived there the rest of his life, struggling to live that word. It's like, that's just unbelievable. He had two spiritual direction meetings his whole life. And that's all he needed. You know, one, one piece of scripture. Uh, so the Christian life is, is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Uh, there's no secret to it. It's just a matter of, is it the only thing we want in this life? Uh, so I think like that monk, we should strive totally to make that the only thing we want in this life.